Welcome to episode 13 of the Underground Christian Podcast, the sensible Christian resource to see the world as it really is, as God sees it, and to apply the commandments of Jesus wisely to the evolving situations around us. A twofer. Here at Underground Christian, we take seriously the great Apostle John's advice to not love the world or the things of the world, because we know that the whole world lies in the hands of Satan. Just so that you know, if you haven't been able to tell, I'm still not completely recovered from COVID. My voice is still a little bit um, flaky, so I apologize for that. But let's get into it. The idea not to love the world or the things of the world is a lot easier to apply when we understand that the term world doesn't mean the earth or the things that we create on the earth. The world in this context is the organized system that's been created to advance the plans of Satan. It's a system, and it's organized. So those are the two keys to understanding exactly what we're not supposed to love. The context is a war that's being fought by Satan against God, and that war is taking place right here on this earth. The battleground is not the land surface, but the heart of human beings, with the ultimate prize being the capture of human souls. So the world is an organized system that fights for Satan on his behalf. If something doesn't help Satan, then it's not the world that John was referring to. With a little practice, it's not too hard to recognize the things of the world. But it does take practice because the components of the world are often disguised to look like something helpful, desirable, or at least innocuous. So to discern the things of the world, it's helpful to know what Satan is trying to accomplish. First, he wants to establish a single political entity across the entire kingdom, his kingdom, which is basically the whole earth. Political hegemony includes all branches of the government, the military, the police, subordinate civil authorities, and everything else that enables rulers to rule. The human leaders who will create this system are easy to identify because they will always reflect something of Satan's character in the way they behave. And what is that character? He's a liar, a thief, a destroyer, and a murderer, according to Jesus himself, as recorded in John 8.44 and 10.10. And leaders pass on their skills to their subordinates. So Satan's human rulers will utilize these same skills to achieve the ends that he wants. Therefore, we can expect our human political leaders, the ones who secretly work for Satan, to lie, steal, destroy, and kill as they work to establish his one-world government. And if you think American political leaders are somehow an exception to this rule, I remind you that there will not be a one-world government unless America is part of it. Satan's second objective is to debase and corrupt everything in God's creation, but most especially human beings since we were made in his image. Anything that debases and corrupts human beings, or the greater earth system in general, must be of the world. His third objective is to hunt down and kill all the Jews and Christians. That tactic was last tried on a large scale against Jews when Hitler was in power, the real one, not the people who keep getting labeled as modern-day Hitlers like Trump. It was also tried by communists, and before that by Muslims, but not on such a grand scale as Hitler. But don't worry, it will be deployed again, but this time it will include both Jews and Christians. Why Jews and Christians, you might ask? Because by annihilating these two groups, Satan will thwart God's plan of redemption and kingdom building. You see, one of God's prophecies is that Jesus will rescue national Israel and the remnant Jews who are alive at that time and bring it and them into his kingdom. If there are no Jews left to rescue, Satan foils God's prophetic prediction. That's the impetus behind all anti-Semitism in the hearts of people, 
And that is the hatred that will fuel the rage for people to track them down and kill them. And then there are the Christians. Before the kingdom of Christ can be established on earth, as it is in heaven, the fullness of the Gentiles must be brought in. That comes from Romans 11.25. The fullness of the Gentiles means a set number of non-Jews who become Christians, that number being known only by God. God the Father knows how many people it takes to fill the kingdom of Christ, so if Satan can kill off all the Christians before that number is reached, then he can prevent the prophecy from being fulfilled. If Satan can prevent any prophecy of God from coming true, then he wins this war because he proves God to be a liar. Now, I know that Christians out there are thinking that can't possibly happen because God controls human destiny, and yeah, I give you that. But does it really matter? From our perspective here down on the earth, it only matters that Satan is going to try because that will necessarily put us in the middle of the entire mess. But even if those plans of his don't work out, which they won't, Satan has one final backup plan that he can try to implement. In fact, he's going to try to implement it, according to the Bible. He's going to try to kill off the entire population of the world, or so corrupt the ones that remain, the people who remain, that God won't or can't use them in his kingdom. In fact, Satan's going to be so successful at this last desperate plan that God will have to step in to put a stop to it, or he would actually be able to pull it off. It says that in Matthew 24, 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. We have covered the details of where Satan's plan came from in episodes 9 and 10, so if you're interested in those details, go back and listen to those episodes. Knowing his plan beforehand gives us a distinct advantage as the end time approaches, and we're getting very close to the end times. Jesus told us all about Satan's grand plan so we would not be deceived when the time came to recognize what was happening. Since Satan lies about everything, the human leaders who will implement his plan will not tell you the real plan, although some of them will know it. Most of the subordinates probably won't know it, but the key leadership will know it. The mouthpieces who speak to the public, though, will just parrot the leadership's line, and they will do so with great confidence to convince us that whatever they want us to think is true. So, those are the main objectives in Satan's wars. Let's recap. First, he wants to establish political control over the entire earth. Second, he wants to debase everything that God has created, but especially people, by taking control of their bodies. Third, his, I'm taking control of their bodies. Maybe we haven't gone into that too much, but that's how he's going to do it. Third, his human forces will search out, detain, and ultimately kill Christians and Jews. There may be others who are caught in that killing web, but they're just going to be collateral damage, not the intended targets. Finally, if all else fails, Satan will implement the final solution, either kill off every person on the planet or render them useless to God. So, who are the people who work for Satan? How do we recognize them? Well, first, they will have the resources to implement Satan's will. Those resources are money, political power, influence, and sin. Without an exception, they will make a lifestyle out of sin because unrepentant and habitual sin puts people into a position of enmity with God because sin opposes God's authority. Anyone in a position of enmity with God works for Satan, and anyone who works for Satan is part of the world. That alone should be incentive enough for Christians to purge habitual sin from our lives. 
when sin creeps in and rears its ugly head, we need to repent, knowing that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. But the focus of this podcast is more on the activities of Satan's human commanders as they advance his overall agenda. They try to hide and disguise their evil and destructive plans behind the false facade of helpful and protective plans. So we often have to apply a healthy dose of scripture to discern their true intentions and expose them for who they are. Since the Bible repeatedly warns us to be on our toes about these kinds of deceptions, recognizing and avoiding them must be spiritually important. In 2 Corinthians uh, 2.11, for example, Paul says that we Christians are not unaware of Satan's schemes. Well, maybe that was true in his day, but I'm pretty sure that's not generally true today. The church is filled with all kinds of gullible people who will fall for every little trick that Satan plays on them. One of the countless warnings God has given us about this problem can be found in Proverbs 7.23, as well as many, many other places in the Bible. In Proverbs 7.23, God said, As a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost him his life. Snares are traps that are set for unwary, trusting, and hungry animals. Hunters use bait to lure animals to their snares, and when the animal takes the bait, the snare closes around it, dooming it to its fate. Satan and his human minions do the same thing. They use bait to attract their victims, which is often, but not always, some desirable sin. The bait, not the victims. Satan tries to ensnare as many unwary people as he can in order to augment his own forces and inflict casualties on God's forces. A snared soul is a trapped soul, and a trapped soul is an enslaved soul. Ephesians 6.12 says, We do not battle flesh and blood, but spiritual forces. So this is a battle between the spiritual forces of Satan and the spiritual forces of God, between good and evil, and it's played out through human beings. Let's take a simple example from Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul asks, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. In this passage, Paul is speaking to Christians, not to unbelievers, so he's telling Christians not to be deceived. Well, deceived about what? Deceived about unrighteous lifestyles, basically. A lifestyle is a way of life. Paul is warning people who call themselves Christians not to be deceived into thinking that they can maintain a sinful, unrighteous lifestyle without consequence, the consequence being that they will be excluded from the kingdom of God. In verses 9 and 10, Paul helpfully lists some of these unrighteous lifestyles that will exclude card-carrying Christians from Christ's kingdom. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this isn't a complete list of problem lifestyles, of course, but it merely uses some examples of the kinds of lifestyles that will get a person banned from Christ's kingdom, no matter how many church services they attend, or how many prayers they repeat, or what label they pin on their shirt. And in the 21st century, we are nothing if we're not about our lifestyles. Sinful lifestyles are so prevalent in America that someone sitting on the same pew as yourself in church is likely to be practicing one of them, completely oblivious to the warnings of the great apostle. Fornication, for example, is a catch-all phrase for sexual sin, and any sex outside of a man-woman marriage is defined in the Bible as sin. Say that too loudly in our current hookup culture, even in many churches, and see what kind of a reaction you get. 
You don't even need to get to the homosexual and sodomite portion of the list to elicit a vitriolic, if not almost violent, response. People don't want to be told that God has placed boundaries on their sexual desires, and doing so can and often does elicit outrage. The sexual gurus of the 21st century who are all over the media, professing from higher education, teaching in lower education, and strutting seductively in the entertainment culture, all support this kind of outrage. The world does not like God's boundaries. If you say something so hateful publicly, the self-appointed guardians of culture will condemn you and demand that the technological overlords ban you from social media, blacklist you from holding accounts, and if possible, get your employer to unemploy you. Their political friends have no trouble passing laws to fine you and even incarcerate you for saying such a hateful, bigoted, and hurtful thing. Do you think I'm exaggerating? It's now a crime in New York City to say anything that would offend a transgender activist, even something so minor as using the wrong pronoun. It's illegal in many places in America and in all of Canada to try to help someone escape from homosexual hell by teaching him about God's law and the boundaries he has ordained concerning sexual activities. Another sinful lifestyle that's hugely popular in America today is idolatry, 21st century style. It's widely practiced in our culture and is defended as vigorously as sexual sin. Idolatry is worshiping what should be used or using what should be worshipped. And I have to thank Pastor Colin Smith for that definition. Worship is defined as ardent admiration, love, or adoration. So what are some things that people ardently admire, love, or adore in our culture? Based on the amount of money and time spent on it, one thing would surely be entertainment. There are many elements to entertainment, but let's just take a recent event as one small illustration, not to pick on this artist or his art, because neither of them are particularly unique. At a recent Travis Scott concert, the show had to be canceled due to a massive casualty event that, in this case, had nothing to do with firearms. Approximately a dozen people died at the venue, although it's strangely difficult to get accurate information about what exactly happened and how many people were killed and injured. Again, this is not singling out Travis Scott or his style of music because he's by no means an exception in the entertainment industry. It's just to illustrate a point about what the Bible means when it says, the whole world lies in the hands of Satan. So let's start with the main talent, Travis Scott himself. He is a product of Kanye West and Kanye's Good Music record label, which could be a whole podcast unto itself. The name Travis Scott is a stage name. It's not his real name. His real name is Jacques Berman Webster II. I think we all can agree that's not a good name for a rap artist. His stage name has a cute variation where the S in Scott is a dollar sign, but I'm sure it has no spiritual context. His choice in the name Travis Scott, though, probably does. It means to cross over and wander. Uh, to cross over and wander to what, one might ask, who has a little bit of discernment. Well, if the t-shirt he was wearing at the concert has anything to say about it, then it means to cross over from one spiritual state to another. The t-shirt sported four images of a person transforming from a normal blue person to an abnormal red person with devil's horns. Of course, it's just a t-shirt, no doubt just like the ones we might pick up at Walmart, so maybe it doesn't mean anything spiritual at all. It's probably just a coincidence. The concert itself was held at Astroworld, which is a venue that Travis Scott has used several times before for this particular concert theme. 
Astroworld is the former Six Flags Astroworld in Houston, Texas, and hence its name. To get into the concert, attendees had to walk through the mouth of a giant skull that was draped with dreadlocks. A frightening thing to look at if you aren't high on PCP. Skulls are favorite symbols of Satanists, probably because, you know, Satan really hates people and wants them dead. And so apparently do many of his most ardent supporters. Once through the gaping mouth of the skull, Scott's patrons entered the auditorium, at the center of which was the stage which was constructed as a giant upside-down cross, another favorite satanic symbol. The back of the set was a mountain range, and at its base was a cavern. You might also call it a portal, because that's what it would become. Why a portal? Well, you might need to take my word for this, at least until I get around to showing you the evidence. But certain dedicated and really intelligent Satanists are trying to use highly sophisticated technology to open a portal to another dimension because they know there are entities on the other side of that portal that really want to enter our world. You can call it a parallel or alternate universe if it makes you feel better about it, but these scientists know there is something over there that wants to be over here, and they're trying very hard to help them get here. As an aside, have you ever wondered where movie and television writers get their ideas for shows like Stargate? Which, if you're not familiar with it, is about portals to other worlds. We like to think that these TV and movie writers just are highly creative people, but actually, they're highly directed creative people. They get many of their ideas from the really smart people who run the world and want to advertise to the really dumb people what they are working on that will help them get all of those dumb people enslaved to Satan. It's a kind of advanced programming for the masses, so they get familiar with certain technologies and moral ideas that will be rolled out in the not-too-distant future. It's also a form of gloating contempt that's directed at the dumb people who are thrilled to watch their future unfold in front of them thinking it's all make-believe when it's really a nightmare projection of the future that the smart people are trying to create. Uh, but I digress. So why is there a mountain range in the set? Well, it's just a guess, but that very well-known international entity that is currently trying to open what I call a portal is located in a very famous mountain range. So let's just say that's my working hypothesis. The concert started with a giant mountain range burning with fire and smoke so it would resemble, well, hell, to be honest. And if that imagery wasn't clear enough, it also had a giant eyeball staring out through the portal. Eyeballs are favorite occult symbols, having originally been displayed as the Eye of Horus in ancient Egypt, Horus being an Egyptian god. Single eyeballs are frequently displayed inside a pyramid or inside a triangle or on Jay-Z's t-shirt because they represent the all-seeing eye of Satan. Check out the back of a dollar bill if you'd like to see an example. The artwork on the back of the dollar bill is the Great Seal of the United States, which was designed by Charles Thompson and William Barton shortly after the founding of the Republic. Now, some people claim there's no evidence that either man was a Freemason, the Freemasons being a group that is fully immersed in occult ritual and Satanism, at least at the highest levels of the Masonic achievements. But if you understand the symbology of the seal and the symbology that's used by a Freemason, it's kind of hard not to draw the conclusion that the two creative artists were Masons. Because so many other people of the time were in Washington-ish area, you know, the constitutional area. But back to the show. At one point during the Astroworld event, the whole mountain range was filled with single creepy eyes in a background of fire and smoke. Occultists love to use satanic symbolism publicly because they think the ignorant little people will not understand its significance. So it's a way to mock them and show contempt for their stupidity, while at the same time bowing in worship to Satan. 
Even when people understand the meaning of the symbols and the dark evil behind their display, most of them don't really believe it's worship. They just think the person's doing it for the effect. But the occultists understand the truth. Closer to the end of the show, a pair of disembodied hands appeared over the portal. The phrase, see ya on the other side, was then projected onto the back of the portal just before all the chaos started. On the other side of what? I mean, this isn't even subtle. It's about as in your face as you can get. Oddly, the show continued for another half hour after the first casualties started to drop and be carted out by paramedics. One concert attendee, who posted on TikTok right after the event, did not issue a glowing report of the concert. I'm going to play what he posted, but this is a fair warning. His language may be street appropriate, but it will be a little spicy for some people. Nevertheless, he makes his point very well. Just listen to the reaction from a real person right after the concert before anyone could edit or take down the post. It just felt like we was like literally like in fucking hell, bro. Like it felt like we was in a concert in hell. You couldn't breathe. You couldn't see. Like just imagine all the people they're going to find tonight who was in that crowd, who nobody could see, who nobody could hear, who passed out. And everybody was just trumpling on top of them the whole fucking concert. Like I'm thinking it's probably going to be like at least 100 people who dead tonight. Like I kid you not. Like in the VIP section, it was so many bodies laid out. People was getting pulled out who was fainted. And the people were trying, the medics were trying to give them CPR. And they was flipping them over. And like, they was literally turning them black and blue. Like, I never seen no, I never seen death in my fucking life, bro. Just by me alone, it was probably like 10 fucking people laid out dead. And like, once the medics tried to help them, they wasn't responding. They moved to the next person. It was nothing they could have do. Like, this shit, like, this shit really fucked me up and, like, really spooked me tonight. Like, that was, like, some demonic shit. Like, and what was so crazy, like, people were screaming, help, trying to tell Travis Scott. It was like, help. The whole crowd was just going, like, help, help, help. And he just kept going, bro. It was like, that shit was scary, bro. It was so demonic, bro. And mind you, y'all see the type of music I make. Y'all see everything. Like, you know, like, I've been so heavily influenced by Travis. But, like, after tonight, bro, like, God really showed me, like, you know, like, stay away from that shit, bro. Like, that shit not for you. Because, like, he sacrificed so many people's lives tonight. Like, for real. Like, so many people's lives are gone tonight because they want to go to a fucking Travis Scott concert and have fun. You know, he influenced people to be raging and all this shit. So many people broke in. And it was just chaos, bro. It was a living fucking hell, bro. Imagine seeing all those dead bodies. And that was, that was just by me. All I can say is, at least God was working in the life of one concert attendee, and hopefully he's also working in others. Sadly for some of these people who wanted to dabble in the darkness, it's too late. Did you know that a nine-year-old boy, Ezra Blount, died at this concert, according to ABC 13? I have to ask what a nine-year-old boy was even doing at a rap concert like this. What were his parents thinking? He wasn't the only minor killed at the concert either. Another 14-year-old boy also died, so there must have been a fair number of minors at the concert. They were fully participating in what John calls the world, or what Jesus calls the unfruitful works of darkness. If you're having trouble discerning how this musician is and his entire entourage are part of the world, we need to talk. You might think I'm joking about people who can't discern the connection to satanic darkness, but some writers at the New York Post apparently have trouble with this rather straightforward concept. They published an article with the following headline, Astroworld Tragedy Fuels Satanic Ritual Conspiracy Theories. Hey, New York Post people, 
It was a satanic ritual that was presented in the context of a rap concert. If you were not evil liars who work for Satan, you would be able to quickly discern that Travis Scott is not alone in hosting satanic rituals that masquerade as concerts. It happens all the time in the music world. Beyonce, or however you pronounce that ridiculous name, did a mega-spectacular satanic ritual at the Super Bowl a few years ago. Yes, the media denied that it was satanic too, but really, every aspect of her performance followed satanic ritual if you do even a tiny, brief investigation into satanic rituals. So here is a shout-out to the New York Post globalist cult writers. It's not a conspiracy or a theory if it actually happens. Perhaps you cultists should spend some time investigating what a satanic ritual looks like before you publish this kind of spurious nonsense. The Travis Scott concert was one recent but by no means exclusive example of the entertainment industry's unhealthy attachment to Satanism. The satanic elements were easy to spot if you know what to look for, and even if you don't know what to look for, but they are not unique to Travis Scott or to rap music artists. Chances are that your favorite singer, dancer, actor, actress, talk show host, or movie star are also members of this exclusive club. Why do I say that? Partly because they advertise their membership using satanic symbols and gestures of secret societies like the Masons, and almost every famous person uses these symbols or these gestures. But more importantly, they are a successful part of the entertainment industry, which is a very important and key part of the world system because it influences public opinions, perceptions, values, and beliefs. No one gets to be rich, famous, and popular in the world system unless the world rulers approve of them because control of this messaging system is too important. It provides instant access to the public. It's well-funded and protected by politicians and the political system. It has a long history of pushing the moral and ethical boundaries of progressivism as far as the public will allow, each year pushing them further and further toward what? The boundaries are progressing towards something, and it's not godly worship. Changes are taking place over a time frame that's hard to perceive, but the changes are always going in one direction. Satan, like God, is not concerned with time as much as we lowly humans are. We're in a hurry, and we don't often take the long view of history. When we want something, we want it now, next week at the latest, and sometimes we have a really hard time discerning trends that have taken place over time. Satan, he's not so hobbled. He uses time to his advantage, which means the satanic system that advances his agenda uses time to its advantage. If you want to see time at work in the entertainment industry, watch the excellent movies Hollywood Unmasked Parts 1 and 2, but particularly Part 1. Part 1 is about the sexual content of the entertainment industry, and Part 2 is about its violent content. They both make the point as to how the entertainment industry has modified the morals and behaviors of its consumers over time and what direction that modification took. If you understand Satan's objectives, then you can see them advanced in and through the media over time. It's not just the entertainment media he uses, but affiliated forms of entertainment as well. Take, for example, athletics. America and the rest of the world love their athletics, and there's nothing inherently wrong with athletics in general. Athletics can do a lot of good. They are a great way to get exercise, teach team-building concepts, and learn about winning and losing, success and failure, persistence and effort. But sometimes we take athletics a bit too far. We should ask ourselves if Satan wanted to use sport to advance his agenda, where would he put his efforts? A quick but mostly effective way to identify the satanic element of anything is to follow the money. For where the money is, so is Satan because money powers the world.
Or as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Satan, being the king of evil, is also the king of money. In Matthew 6.24, Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is often translated money, but really it means the things that are bought with money. We cannot pursue luxury and wealth and fame for their own sake and serve God too. Why? Well, Jesus told us why. He said, either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. When God demands that we obey him even when it costs us our wealth, luxury, or fame, which create in us a sense of security and prestige, the rubber really hits the road. I know of very few people who will voluntarily, willingly part with any of these. We either serve God or we serve comfort, security, and prestige. Sometimes we're forced to part with these things, but what is the usual response when that happens? Pursue them again and regain what we lost. That's the response. If we follow the money in sports, we end up either at the very big college programs or at the professional sports. Don't think that just because we park ourselves in front of a TV to watch a game instead of slavishly following a celebrity, that somehow we're outside of Satan's influence. We aren't because he controls the big money in sport. Maybe it's disguised a little better. Maybe it's a little more subtle than Hollywood productions, but don't doubt who has control of the money and that it is being used for an agenda. As I said a few minutes ago, one of the biggest satanic primetime ritual events of all time took place at a recent Super Bowl, a football event. To see Satan's fingerprints in sport, all we need to do is identify the priorities of Satan and see how they play out in the sport. Let's do that. Let's say five priorities. Number one, corrupt God's law. We'll call that morality. Number two, corrupt God's creation. We'll call that nature. Number three, corrupt God's adopted children. Those are people. Number four, corrupt Jesus' church. Those are Christians. And number five, establish a tyrannical political system, and that's basically eliminate liberty. So let's see what professional sports stand for these days. Every professional sport promotes diverse and inclusive sexual sin in the form of LGBTQ values and morals. That checks off morality and nature and a bit of people. Every professional sport promotes radical communist propaganda and destructive insurrection in the form of Black Lives Matter, which has nothing to do with black lives or how much they matter. Of course, black lives matter. So do white lives and brown lives and every other life as well, including unborn babies' lives. When was the last time a professional sports team championed unborn babies' lives? BLM is not about Jesus or God or righteousness, and his true followers don't support it. BLM cynically uses black lives and the troubles that some of them encounter as an emotional prop to infiltrate American institutions with communist ideology, which is opposed to God, Jesus, and Christianity, as well as everything else America stands for. Where were these professional sports teams when Antifa was rampaging across America, burning down or looting billions of dollars in property, attacking people and killing some of them? Crickets. Check off morality, people, Christians, and liberty. Every professional sports league supports and promotes the science of gene editing and genetic modification, especially in medicine, and they pressure their players to take experimental genetic drugs that do what? According to the drug manufacturers themselves, the shots will not prevent anyone from getting COVID. They will not prevent you from spreading COVID. They will, they say, shorten the duration and severity of COVID when you get it, or at least they'll do that for a few months. It was supposed to be forever. That's what they said when they rolled out the program. 
But that was a lie, because now they tell us it's only good for a few months, maybe, and then you need a booster. And then you'll need another booster. And then another. They don't bother to explain how a vaccine that does not work after the first two doses and does not work after a third booster dose will somehow work after a fourth, a fifth, and a sixth dose. Germany has purchased enough Vax drug for seven doses for the entire population. The professional sports leagues have no problem insisting that their players alter their God-given genes to produce toxic spike proteins that infect their bodies, cause blood clots, and give them heart problems. They have no problem insisting that their players violate the holy temples of God, their bodies. There are reasons why fully vaccinated people are succumbing to COVID and worse in massive numbers, but we're not allowed to talk about these people or their illnesses or how their illnesses may relate to vaccination pursuant to the dictates of the tech oligarchs. You will be canceled if you try. You will never hear CNN or NBC or ABC or any of the other mainstream media admit that no mRNA drug has ever been approved for human use, even emergency use, until this one. That is a fact, but you're not allowed to say it. Do you know why no mRNA drug has ever been approved for human use before this one? It's because they all failed their phase three animal trials. All the animals died before the end of their expected lifespan. They all died prematurely. All of them. Did the drug companies suddenly get real smart and figure out a way to keep the drug recipients alive long term? Because if they did, they haven't shared that information with anyone that I know of. That kind of evidence would certainly be featured prominently in the news. What they did was get approval from the FDA to provide the drugs on a direct development to human authorization basis. They deliberately skipped the long-term drug trials. And long-term for humans means 5 to 15 years, which is why drug trials can't be rushed. It takes time to determine if a new drug will have long-term detrimental effects on our biological systems. Now, you may have taken this shot, and you might be very happy with its results. Or maybe you regret it. Either way, it was your choice. You chose to participate in a phase 3 drug trial and become an actual animal test subject. Other people choose not to, including many athletes. Morally, they should not be forced or coerced into taking these shots. Legally, it's unlawful to force or coerce anyone to participate in a drug trial. Why, then, does half the American population feel entitled to coerce and compel those who are prudent about injecting themselves with an experimental biological agent into taking the shot? The answer is simple. Those people are idolaters who worship what should be used. They worship their own perceptions of threats to their health, which really means they worship their own bodies more than they respect other people who are created in God's image and who are endowed by their creator with their own ability to decide what is wise to put in their bodies and what's not. Maybe those people who don't want the shot think it's wrong to modify what God created. Maybe they think that's sin. Who are you, fearful man and woman, to question their moral assessment? Doesn't the Bible tell us not to put a stumbling block in the way of our brethren? As Paul said in Romans 14, 13, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Paul was speaking about food, and even here he stated that certain foods are unclean for those who believe them to be unclean. In other words, if you think something is a sin, then for you, it's a sin if you do that thing. If someone thinks it's a sin to inject themselves with a biological agent that will alter their DNA and cause their own body to produce an alien toxic spike protein, 
then no matter what you might think of that decision, for that person, it's a sin. Christians are therefore commanded through the Bible not to interfere with that decision, but to respect the decision of that brother or sister in Christ. The restriction does not apply, however, to people of the world. Now, think about that for a minute. We have people in the professional sports system who claim to be Christians. Apply this test, and what really are they? They feel entitled to impose their selfish viewpoint about shots on others, all of the players and people in the league. Not only that, but these idolaters seek to cancel anyone else's ability to make a different decision, really about anything at all. They are, in short, tyrants. They love tyranny, and they support tyranny. It's one thing for a member of the world to be mentally sucked into this kind of tyrannical thinking because they don't pretend to want to please God. But boy, it's an entirely different and really detestable thing for professing Christians to support the kind of tyranny that will lock up those who disagree with them and then have the gall to ask God to keep them safe, as if God were some kind of cosmic Santa Claus who dispenses favors to everyone who asks. God seeks righteous followers, and he has told us what righteous means. He wrote about it at length in his best-selling book. Jesus spent three years publicly demonstrating what it looks like on a daily basis. Nowhere in the Bible does God or Jesus support, affirm, or promote human tyrants. The prophecy of Isaiah 6-9 seems to be coming true for the people of America. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. When we worship that which should be used and use that which should be worshipped, we fulfill this prophecy. For those of us who do our best to seek righteousness before God, including by guarding our bodies from chemical and genetic assaults, our future in this world is coming into sharp focus. We face official government persecution for our beliefs, backed by the popular delusions of the people, just as we see happening in Australia, Austria, Germany, and Israel. These countries are test zones to see what the modern tyrant can get away with, and it's coming to America. While we have spent decades living soft and luxurious lifestyles here in the United States, the prophecy of Jesus is getting closer to our fellow Christians every day. In the world, you will have tribulation, according to John 16.33. When we resist the demands of the world, especially its demand that we put their potions into our bodies, we will encounter their wrath. Their wrath is tribulation, and tribulation doesn't mean a little inconvenience. It does not mean a temporary setback like a few weeks of lockdowns or being barred from participating in restaurant dining and cultural events. Dictionary.com defines tribulation as grievous trouble, severe trial or suffering. Merriam-Webster offers some synonyms to help us experience the flavor of tribulation. Affliction, agony, anguish, distress, excruciation, hurt, misery, pain, torment, torture, travail, and woe get it? There's no mention of wealth, health, and happiness in this list. As Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you, John 15, 18. And there is that term, world, again. The created system that is designed to systematically advance the agenda of Satan and constrict, restrict, and ultimately destroy the agenda of God one little step at a time. That system is implemented by its members, who are the ones who bring on the tribulation of the saints. They will only create tribulation if they hate us, and they will only hate us if we are not part of their value system. They love the people who hold the same values that they do. Do you crave affirmation and support from the world? Then just value what they value and they will love you for it. 
John 15, 19 says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. If you affirm what they affirm, then they will support you. If you advocate for their concept of morality, then they will champion you, your feelings, your beliefs, your values, and your morals, because those things will be shared by you and them. You will be one of them, and they will smile on you. It's that simple. If the world thinks we are great, then we have a serious problem as Christians. If the world doesn't clash with us, then we should carefully examine ourselves. If we look and act just like the world does, maybe to get along with the world, then we clearly belong to the world. Now, I'm not saying that we should go around trying to annoy people, because that's not an appropriate behavior for a Christian either. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification. We are here to help unbelievers find God and reach out to His Son, Jesus Christ, for their salvation. And to do that, we must apply a strong dose of wisdom to our interactions with everyone, whether they're Christians or not. The wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy, James 3.17. These are the essential characteristics that Christians are to cultivate. When we look like Christians, act like Christians, and don't compromise with the world on fundamental issues of righteousness, then we will automatically annoy the members of the world. When we start to discern how the world insinuates its values, morals, and tactical advantages through everything it produces, then we put ourselves in a position to follow the sage advice of the great Apostle Paul when he said, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 17. It's easy to spiritualize and muddle these commands to make them little more than intellectual exercises. It's infinitely harder to apply them to the actual worldly temptations around us to identify which things of the world are evil and which are neutral so we can withdraw from the evil ones. It's hard because the temptations are real and they're powerful. Do you think the ancient Israelites defied God because their temptations were weak and fleeting? Do you know why they even defied God? They defied God because they were more interested in pleasing the world than in pleasing God, and it showed in their behavior which produced their fruits. The world of that era worshipped other gods, and part of that worship involved the practice of ritualistic sex. So the Israelites got used to hanging out with temple prostitutes in violation of God's sexual purity laws. They got used to accumulating wealth through deceptive and fraudulent practices in violation of God's economic laws. They even got used to sacrificing their own children to Molech in violation of the entire law of God. They did these things because the world did them, and they wanted to be accepted by their neighbors in the world more than they wanted to please God. Multiculturalism was everything to them. Are we, as a culture, much different when we sacrifice our own children in an abortion clinic for our own personal convenience? When we do that, we worship our own modern Molech. And what is our modern Molech? Well, I'll let you think about that. Christians are supposed to be different from the people of the world, so different that we can't be missed. People who follow Jesus will live lives that clash with the values of our culture. 
It will be obvious that we reject the world's values, and by extension the things that it produces which promote those values, like rap artists who put on a concert that honors other gods. Once we identify the evil in art, or in sport, or in products, or in lifestyles, then we need to kick them out of our lives. We are not to practice those things or accommodate them. We're not to affirm them or advocate for them. Does a movie we like promote immoral lifestyles and attitudes? Then we have to stop watching it. Does a favorite musical artist sing inappropriate lyrics or display satanic symbols on their clothing or promote immoral lifestyles? Then we need to thrust that artist out of our lives. Dump the world's music because Satan uses music to manipulate his slaves. Throw out the CDs, cancel the iTunes, eliminate the evil, and find something else that's at least not unrighteous. Listen to other music that does not offend God, or read the Bible, or just exist in some form of silence for a little while. Just you and God. If that's too hard, then what are you going to do when it comes to standing up to the woke crowd? What will you do when your son Bob announces that he's now Carol and wants to go dress shopping? Start with the simple things so you can build your strength for the bigger ones. Just make sure that for every subtraction, you add something godly in its place. Add in Bible study or fellowship or other being with other like-minded believers. Add some appropriate Christian music or books or videos. Or maybe start educating yourself to take up the battle with the world. Just make sure it's an appropriate educational study so you don't get sucked back into the world again. These are dark, difficult times coming that the Bible has spoken about. But we are not to worry about these times because they have been ordained by God and they're here for a purpose. Jesus said those times must come before he will return. So instead of worrying about tribulation, we are to prepare for those times as well as the current times we're living in. This is the advice I want to end with. Preparation is not all negative. It's not all subtraction. We have a job to do when the times get tough. So the first thing we have to do is understand what that job is. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus laid out a lot of the information about the end times. It's an entire chapter that describes what's going to happen leading up to and in the Great Tribulation, which is shortly going to happen, and it's going to happen just before Jesus returns. He had Paul write his epistles and John write Revelation to fill in some additional details of this time period. One of the things that Jesus said concerns our role. In Matthew 24, verses 45 to 47, he told a little parable. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. This is an end-time prophecy as well as a commandment, and it concerns food. The usual and not incorrect interpretation of food is that Jesus is referring to spiritual food, which is the gospel. I don't disagree with that interpretation, but I think it's incomplete. I think that Jesus was giving us a practical, parallel instruction about something we're supposed to do during that difficult period. We are supposed to feed our fellow Christians who will lack food during that time. Why will they lack food? Because they will not go along with the world and its values, and the world will respond by denying them the ability to buy the food they need to survive. We are already seeing the seeds of that policy being sown in Europe and Australia. The means to implement that policy are being created right in front of our eyes. If you don't understand how it will be done, just accept that the Bible says it will be done. Such people will not be able to buy or sell, including food. We will touch on that subject in another episode, but for now, how do we prepare for some Christians not being able to buy food? We prepare in two ways. 
First, by establishing a small network of local believers who can look out for each other in difficult times. And second, by learning how to grow food during an emergency. Not only are these things that we can do now, they are not things that people on the radio or in podcasts can do for you. These are things every church should be organizing now. The benefits of implementing these two simple policies are a closer relationship with nearby believers and the production of fresh produce during expensive inflationary times. We can eat the food we grow, or we can give it to others who might need it, or maybe both. It's a win-win either way. These are two very practical things we can do that are both biblical and preparatory, and in the process, we'll build relationships with other like-minded Christians in the area. There's a simple way to grow food that can be done anywhere, and it's, it's really simple and it's inexpensive. We'll try to cover that in another episode, so stay tuned. There are many other things we could do to prepare, but I think the totality of Matthew 24 and other scriptural passages make it clear that Christians, in addition to our many other responsibilities, have a responsibility to prepare for the end times so that the generation at that time is ready to do their job whenever the end times arrive. We can't do that if we don't understand prophecy and what it tells us about that time period. There's too much rubbish floating around the internet when it comes to prophecy, so be sure to check back here regularly for clear, sensible information about the end times and prophetic events, and to arm you against the world. If you found this podcast interesting, useful, important, or entertaining, please recommend it to someone you know who might benefit by it. Give it a thumbs up or happy face or whatever else your app has to encourage others to listen. This is not a commercial enterprise, and as you can tell, I'm not a professional podcaster. I'm just a small guy and an unlikely person doing what I can to bring a little tiny bit of light to the deep darkness of the world. There's no budget for this podcast, at least not much of one, so it's limited to what I can invest both in time and money, which is why it doesn't get posted as regularly as I would like. But hopefully God will help me keep posting these things so that, you know, everybody can hear them that wants to. Pray that it benefits some listeners spiritually and maybe even physically as we develop the capabilities of the broadcast and the ministry. Underground Christian can be heard on several platforms, including Podbeam, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, and Pandora. And I'm trying to post it to BitChute, so I, but I need you know some video things to try to you know get that to work too. So give me a little time on that. We'll have to see how that how that goes. Um, now I do not check every single one of these things. BitChute is my main uh, where I post, and it goes out to others. So if they stop um, you know hosting it, uh, I'm sorry. I don't really check them regularly. To find Underground Christian, look for the bright green icon on any of those platforms. We love green, like lettuce. So you type in Underground Christian, and it should you know, eventually you get to the big green icon. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. I will respond as soon as I can. If you wish to help with the podcast, you could do some material presentation or research or website development. Just let me know in an email. Until next time, keep your eyes up, your head down, and prepare yourself to do the work of God. But if your heart is hard like a stone toward God, just ask him and he'll give you a new soft heart, kind of like flesh. But you've got to ask to become one of the victors of his who will triumph over evil with Christ and be rewarded with an eternal life with God. That is a great promise, and it's much better than Satan's forgery. 